We are in Luke 23, as Todd just read. We'll go through verse 25 today, Lord willing. This entire process that we we look at in this last week of Jesus Christ, uh, called the Passion of the Christ, this is... This is the redemption Jesus is buying from us. I love to be able to spend some extra time in this and not cram it all in at Easter uh, to try to get all of it in. It's almost nearly impossible to to fit it all in. Uh, And yet we've been able to have the time and going through Luke to fit it all in. Um, If you've ever haggled with someone over a price, maybe it's car or piece of candy, whatever it may be, is it, uh, you know, I'll give you this. Well, I'll give you that. Okay, well. You're going around, going back and forth. You do the deal. The deal's finally done and it's paid, paid for. Paid in full and you get your lemonade or your car or whatever it might be. This is the haggling going on. This is Jesus paying the price. This is Jesus, for you and I, when we pay a price, we just, we hand money over. Or maybe it takes a little bit of time to sign the papers on a new car. We're signing them all. Everything's coming together. Everything is coming together as we see these chapters unfold. Our redemption. Redemption is that we're being bought back from a life of slavery and death. Slavery to sin and the penalty of that sin. Death. Jesus is buying us back. And we're seeing it play out each day. We are uh, finally in chapter 23. It's going to be early on what we would call Friday morning. I say what we would call because their days weren't necessarily Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It was uh, first day, second day, seventh day, first day, uh, the Lord's Day, which became known as Sunday. Um, uh, the date is what was important to them, and, to them, and that's this date is Nisan 14, N-I-S-A-N 14, not so much Thursday or Friday. Jesus has endured what appears to be three trials up to this point. He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken immediately to Annas, who is the former high priest in Israel. He's been deposed. Uh, He reigned from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. And now in his place is reigning his son-in-law. He had five sons that were the high priest after him. And now it's his son-in-law, Caiaphas. We know him not only from the Bible, but from extra-biblical history. Josephus and Philo write of this man and write of these people that we're looking at. And so Jesus first goes to Annas and they're trying to find a charge against him. It's like a grand jury where he's be, Jesus is being arraigned and they're trying to trap Jesus into to giving himself up. Jesus knows better. They can't find anything. Jesus gets slapped across the face, mocked and beaten with a bag over his face, and his best friend is in the courtyard nearby very late at night denying that he even knows him. Jesus is taken from Annas to Caiaphas in what appears to be a private meeting first between him and Caiaphas. Nothing transpires. Caiaphas is angry. He brings together the whole council of the Sanhedrin, the 70 members presided over by the high priest, 71 people. They're all there that night, late at night. We're talking between 1 and and 4 a.m. They're trying Jesus. It's all illegal. Can't do it during the Passover feast. Can't do it at night. Can't do it anywhere but the temple. They're doing, they're breaking all the rules. Many of you asked after last week, I gave you some facts. So where did you get that information? And if you, if you will, you look at, you find these things in what's called the, the Mishnah, uh, the Jewish Mishnah. It's the oral law that's been codified. And believe me, it'll put you to sleep in a big hurry. It's not a good read, not a fun read, but uh, that's where this information comes from. It also comes from Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish historian at the, in the days of Jesus. He, he knew of Jesus, lived during the days of Jesus and of Philo, and of Eusebius, church historians. You gather all this together, and this is what we have. 
But we know from the Bible is that Jesus is being denied while he's being tried. And so he goes to Annas, he goes to Caiaphas, and he stands before the whole council, and it's about four in the morning. Jesus hasn't slept. His friends are gone, and what friends he does have have denied him. One's uh, gone out and almost at least near this time has hanged himself. You know him as Judas Iscariot. The Jews still don't have a charge against Jesus, nothing that will stick. They're trying to bring it to Rome because they can't kill their own. They cannot perform the death penalty, at least not in a formal sense. Later on, you'll see Stephen get stoned to death in the book of Acts, but that had nothing to do with the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is just a bunch of people that were angry at Stephen. They killed him, but to make it official, the Jews can't stone Jesus to death. They need the Roman. They need the Romans to do their, their dirty deeds. And so they try to concoct a charge against Rome and convince the Romans that Jesus is a threat to the Roman Empire in Judea. Now, it's not in the Bible, but I surmise that this night, after the three trials, one of the two men that had the power to do this was either Caiaphas or Annas, and my guess is they went to the house of Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Judea. He's, the, he's Roman. He's not only governor of Judea, but also Samaria. He reigned as governor there. He was the fifth governor at that time from A.D. 26 to 36, 10 years. My guess and the best guess is that the only way for Pontius Pilate to get up as early as he did on Friday morning of the Passover is that there was a meeting between him and Annas and or Caiaphas. And they went to him and they said, look, this man we're going to bring to you. Make sure that you try him. I'm making this up, by the way. This isn't in the Bible. I'm surmising this. It's my heresy, I know. But hang with me. It all plays out very beautifully, I think. Ugly, really be the better word. And my guess is that they got permission and Pilate said, fine. The only people with enough authority would have been the high priest. And what happens when a man gets up out of the bed in the middle of the night if he's married? And we know Pilate was married. His wife's name was Claudia Procula. Look her up. What happens? You get up, men. You go out, you talk to some people. You come back to bed and what does the wife say? Where have you been? What was that all about? I think that happened too. And there's a reason I think that. It's because Claudia Procula, without her name coming into the text, does appear in Matthew's gospel, and she warns Pilate. I believe she went back to bed and started having dreams. We know that from the Bible. She did have some interesting dreams. We'll get to Claudia in a minute. But the only way I believe that Pontius Pilate is going to get up that early and deal with Jesus is because someone visited him in the night and said, look, we need you to convict this man. And so when we get to Luke 23.1, it says, then the whole body of them got up and brought him, that's Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. So there's their three charges that they've come up with. We know he hasn't misled the nation at all. In fact, the nation has been coming to Jesus for the previous three and a half years and for the previous four days have been meeting Jesus in the temple to hear him preach. They love his preaching. In fact, the Jews, which is the chief priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the whole council, they know how much the people love Jesus because they were fearful of arresting him in the temple that the people would revolt. That's how popular Jesus was on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of his Passion Week. But they say, oh, he's misleading our nation. And number two, he's forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, which we know is a lie because biblically, when someone says, Jesus, should we pay our taxes? He pays a poll tax. And he tells people what? Back in previously when they asked him, should I pay my taxes? He says, well, show me a denarius. 
Okay, here you go, Jesus. Here's a coin. Looks like that's the image of, of Caesar on there. Pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. He never said, nope, revolt. He's never forbade anyone to pay their taxes. So both of the, the first ones are, are uh, lies. And the third charge is it saying he himself is Christ a king. You'll not see, not, certainly not in Luke's gospel, where Jesus says, by the way, guys, let me just make this clear to you. I am Christ the king. He never says that. He never said that to the Jews, although he did tell them he is the son of man and that they would see him riding on the clouds at the right hand of God the Father. This hacked them off pretty good. So they bring him to Pontius Pilate. Pilate's up early. By the way, this is going to be before daybreak. In fact, if we were to look at the the parallel accounts in John 18, beginning in verse um, 28 down to 38, Mark chapter 15, verse 1, it just says it's early. Verse 3, so Pilate asked him, that's Jesus, saying, are you the king of the Jews? Notice what he doesn't ask. He doesn't say, are you misleading your nation, young man? Are you forbidding the the taxes to Caesar? He he ignores those. It's like those mean nothing to him. In fact, Pilate knows, probably having been visited the night before, he knows, according to Matthew chapter 27, verse 18 or 19, verse 18, he knows that they're handing Jesus over because they envy Jesus' power. He knows it. Pilate is not dumb. He's an idiot, by the way, but he's not dumb. He's the biggest idiot in Scripture next to, he he likes to keep company with idiots like Judas Iscariot. And we'll find that at the end of this. So he knows. He knows what they're up to, and he knows why they hate Jesus, but he's not against Jesus. So all he asks him about is the third charge. Are you the king of the Jews? And he, that's Jesus, he answered him and said, literally he says, you say, you say. New American Standard Bible has, it is as you say. You'll see that in italics, which means if you see words in italics, it means it's not in the original Greek text. It's just Jesus saying, you say. Now, is Jesus the king of the Jews? I like what Todd prayed. You are the king of the Jews, but oh, so much more. It's like somebody saying, and no one would ever say this, is that Lance, you only work on Sundays. Only my good enemy friends say such a thing. Lance, do you just work on Sundays? I would answer, you say. You say. Um, people say things that might have a little bit of truth in them, and you might say, well, you know, that's what you think. And yes, part of what you say is true. Yeah, you say. That's what you say. But Jesus is not saying here, yep, absolutely, Pilate, that it is as you say. That's who I am. He's not saying that. It's just, you say. As you understand what it might mean to be king of the Jews, uh, yeah, whatever. It's kind of a whatever statement Jesus is saying. It is as you say, you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, mind you, Pilate agreed the night before, at least in my estimation, I'll try him, we'll get rid of him. But somewhere in the night, Pilate, Pilate hates these guys. They hate Pilate. There is no friendship between the Jews and Pontius Pilate. Pilate has a history in Judea of hating the Jews. On one occasion, Pilate brought in flags with a Roman emblem on it into Jerusalem. You do not do that to the Jews. They revolted against Pilate. And when he sent out his henchmen to kill them, they all took their necks and bore their neck and said, kill us right here. We will die. We will not have images brought in to Jerusalem. He tried to do it with a shield. 
was trying to appease Emperor Tiberius, and he made shields with the, the emblem of Tiberius on the shields, and he tried to have them brought into Jerusalem. The same revolt happened. And the Jews bore their necks and said, kill us if you must, but we will not tolerate this. Each time Pilate loses, he hates the Jews more, they hate him more, and news goes back to Rome. Pontius Pilate's having a hard time governing this people. So on another time, this idiot Pontius Pilate says, I want to build a water aqueduct. I want to bring water in the city. I know where I'll get the money. I'll go to the temple and rob their temple of its treasuries. I'll take the money out of the temple, and that's how I'll pay for it. You think the Jews like that? Tiberius didn't like it either. Now, up to this point, we're in AD 33. In AD 31, a particular man, stay with me in your history here, a particular man by the name of Lucius Sejanus. He was the right-hand man to Emperor Tiberius in Rome. Lucius Sejanus was a very close friend to Pontius Pilate. And whenever Pilate would, would, uh, uh, would make enemies with the Jews, whenever he would mess up in his, in his dealings with the Jews, he always had Lucius Sejanus to tell, tell, to tell Tiberius, he's cool, leave it alone, Tiberius. He's doing the best he can. In AD 31, however, Sejanus died. And now Pilate has no advocate for him in Rome, and Tiberius isn't too hip on Pilate. He's running his course. He's made too many, uh, made too many enemies in Judea. So note that. Keep that in the back of your head, is that Pilate is going to be forced to make decisions that he's got to think, am I going to have the hatred of the Jews? Are they going to kill me? Or am I going to get kicked out of my position by the Roman emperor, Tiberius? He's in a quandary between a rock and a hard place. And so in the night, probably after those high priests or one of them had visited him, he's probably thinking, I'm not going to give in to them. I know that they only envy this man, Jesus. So he tells him in verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. It's almost as if the, the high priests are thinking, wait a minute, that's not what you said last night. You said you'd convict him. We told you that he was, a, he was misleading the nation. He was telling people not to pay taxes to Caesar, and he's calling himself a king. And you can't do that. And Pilate's going, nah, it's all bogus. I don't believe any of that anyway. And so the next morning, Pilate has rethought it. His wife has asked him, who are those guys at the door? He said, eh, yeah, yeah, probably mumbled as we might. And he says, ah, find no guilt with him. Go over, if you will, to the next gospel over. Hold your place in Luke, and let's get the full effect of this in John chapter 18. John 18, beginning in verse 28. Some gospels give us more information than others. You put them all together, you get a, a bigger, a fuller story. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. That's going to be the palace where, where um, Pontius Pilate comes and stays. He doesn't rule, by the way, from Jerusalem. He normally rules in Caesarea by the seashore, uh, but he comes in for the, um, for, the, for the feasts to keep the order. And there's a praetorium, there's a palace where he stays. And so they led Jesus from Caiaphas, that's where we left him, into the praetorium to come to Pilate, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Which is a strange question because the night before they said, we're going to bring this man to you with these accusations. Verse 30, they answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. It's almost like you can hear him underneath their breath. 
Pilate is supposed to be playing nice with the Jews. We told you last night we're bringing him to you. Don't ask any dumb questions. Just condemn him. But Pilate comes forth. So why do you bring this guy before me? If he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him in the first place. Pontius. Uh, Verse 31, so Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. No doubt here they're very angry because Pilate is not playing nice. He's not, how they even got a meeting with him is, that's why I guess that they went the night before and said, please give us a meeting. And he agreed to something there and now he's not doing it. And now they're telling him, we can't put him to death. You know this. Verse 32, to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying well, what kind of death he was about to die. Jesus said, signified that he would die by crucifixion, not by stoning. Verse 33, therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this in your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Or maybe you put the emphasis on R. So you are a king, which was one of their accusations. So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king or you say correctly you see that inserted in some translations. You say that I'm a king. Yes, your understanding, Pilate, of what it means to be a king, yeah, but I'm that and so much more. You say that I'm a king. For this reason I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. To which Pilate asks, what is truth? When he had said this, he went out to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. That's John's version of events. Much longer than Luke's. Let's go back to Luke. Jesus has admitted he is a king. Pilate is not concerned about that in the least. I find no guilt in this man. And there's the first time that he says it, where he says, I find no guilt in him. There in verse 4. And they keep insisting, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're losing this already. He stirs up the people. I'm in verse 5. Teaching all over Judea. Oh, how terrible. That he stirs up the people. Any of you get stirred up after a sermon? Stirred up after a speech of truth? That's the point. To preach the truth is to stir people up and say something like, that's not what I've been taught before. This is true. That's a lie. We get stirred up. I became a preacher because I got so stirred up by not being taught as a kid. And as a young adult, and when I heard somebody finally take the time to preach the truth to me, I got a little stirred up. Some of you who know me, see me from time to time, get a little stirred up. Maybe like right now. You know, I will say, when I go away having, having wept during a sermon, as I have in the past, even last week, I'm embarrassed by that. But I also want you to know This means something to me. It still strikes me. It still gets me. If it doesn't cause you those kinds of tears, you're the one with the problem. This is powerful. This man was God in flesh, and he died for you and me. What? He died for you and me? Someone died for me? 
That doesn't choke you up. What is your problem? Some of you in this room are so blind. You, you feel nothing. You don't see the truth. You won't see the truth. You're stuck in your world of Amazon gifts every day to your front door. You're stuck in your world of materialism. You're stuck in your world of no service. You're stuck in your world of giving God an hour of your week in church and thinking you checked the box that made God happy. Shame on you. God's word is supposed to stir us up. If it's not, the problem is with you. Now, no one made fun of me for crying. In fact, my wife said, Lance, I love the fact that you have been reading the Bible so long, so many times, all your years, and it still gets you. That means something to me. Thank you for my wife for that. I want it to mean something. I'm not crying so as to get you. I don't like to cry. It's not manly. When we stirred up with a deep voice, nothing bothers me. But that's just, that's ridiculousness. That's not a man. This is supposed to hit us and hit us hard. This is Jesus making our redemption happen. Us, worthless, vile sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins. He keeps on insisting, or they keep on insisting. There's, if you're not going to let this man go, Pilate, he is stirring up the people. He's teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee as far as this place, and boom, that word Galilee, Pilate goes, wait a minute, Galilee? Well, I'm not in charge of Galilee. Pilate's the governor, the procurator of Judea and Samaria. Galilee is north of that. Wait a minute, this is not my jurisdiction. I didn't want anything to do with this in the first place. Where's Herod Antipas? Well, Herod was in for the Passover. Probably, Herod is probably a couple of doors down from where they are. Herod's right over there. Go over there to your Galilean governor and let him deal with it. So he does. Pilate thinks he's gotten out scot-free at this point. It says there in verse 7, uh, verse 6, when Pilate heard he was, whether the man was from Galilee, that he was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. Herod is a bigger idiot. Herod, Herod actually is the fool. Jesus would talk to Pontius Pilate. Jesus won't even speak to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas's father, Herod the Great, is the one that tried to put Jesus to death as a baby because he was so threatened by a baby ruling his place. Herod was an amazing engineer and the biggest fool perhaps that ever lived, except his son was probably a little bit worse, at least when it comes to foolishness. Herod Antipas, was, uh, he reigned from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39 in Galilee. He was known as the king of the Jews. Um, he had a, a half-brother named Aristobulus. And Aristobulus was, uh, um, had a daughter named Herodias. Um, and then he also had another half-brother named Philip. So Herodias, this woman Herodias, was Herod Antipas' niece, and then this niece married Herod Antipas' other half-brother named Philip. He had two brothers named Philip. That makes it really fun, doesn't it? Apparently, mom and dad liked one. Philip, well, problem was, was, Herod the Great had two different wives, had a bunch of different wives, and each wife liked the name Philip. Anyway, one of the brothers named Philip was married to Herodias, the daughter of his, half, of his half-brother named Aristobulus. Well, when Herod Antipas went to Rome, he fell in love with his half-brother Philip's wife, Herodias, 
and decided to marry her. And so doing, he had to divorce. The wife he was with was the daughter of the king of Aretas of the Nabataean kingdom. That made the Nabataeans angry. But now he's married to his niece, Herodias. He has appeared in Luke's gospel. Uh, he is the one who had John the Baptist arrested and ultimately beheaded. He is the one that when Jesus is going around preaching, he gets word that Jesus and his people are preaching, and he says, wait a minute, is that John the Baptist raised from the dead? His conscience is on him. He is the one that Jesus comes across some people, and they say, get out of this region in Galilee because Herod, Herod Antipas wants you dead. Jesus said, you go tell that fox, that sly, no good, tearing up everything so-called ruler, go tell him, I'll do what I do. That's Herod Antipas. Has sold his soul to non-truth. At least Pontius Pilate's asking, what is truth? Herod Antipas. Jesus is now going to go before. Verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by Jesus, some magic trick. And he questioned him at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. Isn't that the, the biggest insult? No answer whatsoever. Just a stoic look. Herod has gone so far. Jesus could have said, Herod, I know you've lived a life and your dad was a, a real loser. And I know you've seen a lot of bad things in your life. God bless you. Bless your little heart. Herod, but you are now looking at God in the flesh. And I want to give you the words of life. Your last chance. No, Herod was turned over long before this. Long before this. People that keep trampling on the truth, want nothing to do with truth, God cuts them off. There is a point in which God says, done. We're reading about this in Jeremiah, our Wednesday night study. The entire nation of Israel, a certain point. Jeremiah keeps trying to pray for them, and God says, I'm no longer listening to the prayers on Israel's behalf. This group is going into exile if they don't die before that. That's Herod. That's Herod Antipas. Jesus answered him, nothing. Total silent. Verse 10, and the chief priests, they're there because Pilate's gone. Pilate's no longer there going to accuse him. And the chief priests are thinking, Jesus is going to slip through. We're going to lose this opportunity. So they're there and the scribes with him. They're standing there accusing him vehemently. Imagine the scene. Herod Antipas is trying to get Jesus to do some magic trick. He doesn't care. And when Jesus says nothing, the Jews sit there and they're yelling and screaming. Don't you let him go. They keep doing it vehemently. Angry, yelling, loud voices before the sun has even come up in the morning. Jesus stands there. You know, usually when you're accused, you're going to sit there and, and yell back or stand there and yell back at your accusers, talk about your innocence, or beg for mercy. Jesus does not, none of, nothing. Verse 11, Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Your king put you in a nice robe, go on back to Pilate. You're not going to say anything here after they mocked him. Now, Herod and Pilate, it says there in verse 12, had been enemies prior to that. But they got a good laugh at it all. Apparently, all bygones, bygones are bygones. We know some of the things that separated them. I won't bore you with those details. But they did not like each other. After this, however, with a common enemy, or at least a common punchline, Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day before they had been enemies with each other. All right, isn't that just a, isn't that nice? You know, rulers playing nice together. Didn't Jesus do a good thing and bring people together? Two tyrants 
became buds as a result of rejecting and mocking Jesus together. Now, this isn't a good friendship. Remember Claudia Procula. Matthew chapter 27, verse 19. Two gospels to your left. You go through Mark and then Matthew 27, verse 19, I believe. Not wanting to judge Jesus, he's back. Pilate has already said, I find nothing wrong with him. Herod Antipas found nothing wrong with him. Two men who had nothing for Jesus, and even these pagans are saying he's innocent. All he is is somebody we can, he's a whipping boy to them. And now he stands before Pilate again. Matthew 27, 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, His wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. But last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. This is in the same context we're in in Luke 23. So go back perhaps to that meeting that happened the night before, before daybreak, before they brought Jesus to Pilate. Caiaphas goes, Pilate, we're bringing the Nazarene to you. We need you to see that he's a threat to Rome, condemn him to death. Do it to me as a personal favor. You're needing friends in Rome, Pilate. Don't let us down on this one. Pilate probably agrees. Goes back to bed. Honey, what was going on out there? Nothing, they're just trying to kill the Nazarene. The carpenter from Nazareth? I've heard great things about him, Claudia might have said. Hmm, how sad. Those Jews like to kill their own people, don't they? Yeah, they're a messed up bunch, Pilate might have said. Going back to sleep, dearie. To which she went back to sleep. And with this fresh on her mind, God in flesh, in the mind of a pagan, she dreams a dream. And she suffered greatly in this dream. Ever suffered greatly in a dream? When I suffer greatly in a dream, I usually wake up sweating. Fearful. I have awakened before in nightmares and thought, oh my, I'm scared of the dark. Um, get up, go to the bathroom, throw some water in the face, kind of tiptoe around, get my gun out, look around. (laughs) Go outside, spread some traps, check things out. Go back to sleep, you know, anything, a squirrel on the roof, a a pop in the house, what's that? What's going on? She suffered greatly in a dream. She says, because of that righteous man, have nothing to do with him, Pilate. Don't deal with this. Imagine Herod or a pilot had gotten up earlier than she had at this point after, I don't think any of this took more than half an hour at this point. They brought him to Pilate. He asked him a few questions. You're done. Oh, you're Herod's jurisdiction. He goes over to Herod a couple of blocks over. Herod, he doesn't say much. He comes back 30 minutes, 40 minutes later. Jesus is standing back in front of Pilate. Claudia wakes up, have nothing to do with that man. Verse 13, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And he said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. That's not guilty part two. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Pilate thinking that if I just beat him real good, 
that will satisfy the bloodlust in these people. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Up to this point, Jesus has already been slapped by Annas or by one of Annas' henchmen. After he was taken from Annas to Caiaphas, he was put in the, in the guard of the soldiers, and they put a bag over his head, beat him over his head. Hey, who was it that hit you, prophet? They spit upon him, made fun of him. He made his way to the chief priests. They've made fun of him. He's gone to Herod Antipas, and his people have mocked Jesus, spit upon him, perhaps, put a purple robe on him. You're a king, good-looking king you are. So he's already endured some physical punishment. In fact, if we look at John's gospel, we'll look at it a little bit more next week and see that Jesus suffered at least two horrible beatings. At this point, Pilate is just saying, he's done nothing deserving death. I'm just going to punish him and release him. Fine, will you all all be happy with that? Verse 17, now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. So at the feast of Passover, which is what this is, also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, to show mercy, we'll find a prisoner in jail and we'll let them go free. And so they think since Jesus has been jailed, letting him go, or Pilate just thinks surely they're going to let Jesus go. They'll be fine with that. But verse 18 says, they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. Now we don't know who Barabbas is up to this point. And all we get here is a parenthetical statement in verse 19 that says, he was one who had been thrown into prison, note that, thrown into prison for an insurrection, that's a revolution, made in the city and for murder. John 18, 40 says he was also a robber. So he's a thief. He's trying to lead a revolution around Jerusalem. And he's a murderer. He's killed, probably Romans. And notice that they cried out all together. Pilate, verse 20, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why? What evil has this man done? I found in him no guilt demanding death. Innocent, number three. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. Who are these voices? The other gospels say it's the crowd of people. It's early in the morning, by the way. Jesus is going to be crucified around 6 a.m. Not by what we would look at our watch and say, 6 a.m., that's when we're going to crucify him. To them, it's when the sun comes over the horizon, give or take an hour. They just didn't have watches to, to do such things. Mark tells us it was the, um, would have been the ninth hour, which would have been, or the third hour, I should say, which would be 9 a.m. From 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Then he sat on the cross. He was on the cross till 3 a.m. or 3 p.m. One way or the other, I said 6 a.m. All of this happening in this time period in the morning, very early, very quickly, where did all these people come from? Remember, these are the people, if we went back to Luke chapter 19, we see that when Jesus came into town in the triumphal entry on Monday, they're shouting out in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The same people that on that Monday were in the temple on Tuesday when Jesus cleared that temple out. 
so that he could teach in the temple and all the crowds came to hear him. The same people that were gaining momentum on Wednesday when he's teaching them on Wednesday. The same people that were there on Thursday when they're listening to Jesus and hanging on his every word. These are the people now. If the chief priests had been able to go out and say, okay, I know what you said on Monday and I know you like this guy, but here's who he really is. See, it doesn't take much to change people's minds. It takes very little. I know it from personal experience. People can love you one day and loathe you the next minute. Sometimes people, if it's a, a preacher or a politician or a friend, they're only as good as the last thing they said or last thing they did, right? It can be true with anyone. It can be true with a spouse, a dog. We tend to remember the last thing that was done, not the history of what was done prior. We don't like to give people the benefit of the doubt. And maybe they were having a bad moment, a bad day. Maybe they're sick. Maybe something's gone wrong with them. Whatever it was, the chief priests were able to convince these crowds, and now they are, before the sun has come up, after the trial before Pilate, trial before Herod, and now back to Pilate, and now Pilate's trying to set him free, there's this whole crowd going, crucify him, crucify him. Crucify the man from Nazareth. We want Barabbas. The hubbub behind the scenes, probably with Pilate and his men, is they want Jesus. But it's unthinkable that we would let Barabbas go free. He's a murderer. By the way, Barabbas comes from two words. Bar, meaning son of. Abbas, meaning father. The son of a father. That's all he is. Don't name your kid that. What kid is not the son of a father? It's probably akin to our John Doe. Some nobody. Some no-name guy leading an insurrection and murder. Some nobody is in there. We want him. And so, Pilate having asked them again, at the end of his rope, in verse 22, why, what evil has he done? I found nothing in him demanding death. But they were insistent, again in verse 23, with loud voices that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And now Pilate knows, I don't have my buddy Sejanus next to Tiberius in Rome. So when this information gets back to him, Tiberius is going to hear that I let a riot occur in Judea. If I let Jesus go, these people are crying out, I'm going to lose control and I will lose my position. But in his own mind, you can see, but I can't. I can't release a murderer and give them an innocent man. What do I do? Just what a spineless man does do. The wrong thing. One who has lived their lives digging their hole. And suddenly you find, I'm at the bottom of the dark hole I dug for myself. The really evil ones shake their fist at God. How dare you do this to me? Do this to you. You dug the hole, Pilate. You're the one with the problem. You're standing before God Almighty, do the right thing. Jesus clearly doesn't think so little of Pilate that he won't talk to Pilate. He wouldn't even talk to Herod Antipas. Folks, if you're still hearing the gospel, if it still has some effect on you, then God has not turned you over. If you're sitting out there and you've heard it so many times and it means so little to you or you would never come to church, 
So I'm talking to people that aren't even here. Consider yourself turned over by the Almighty God, perhaps. I can't conclude that because God can save. And has saved people that we think, wow, I never saw that one coming. Isn't that great when that happens? So it's not for us to say, oh, God looks like he's turned you over. Let that be your choice. If this means so little to you, if this doesn't produce a tear, produce a depression in you, to see what God did for us. This is all what he did for us. Three months ago, it was it two months ago, it was Christmas. We celebrated the birth of Jesus, the birth of God. We celebrate the birth so that he can get to the death. with loud voices asking that he be crucified. Verse 24, And Pilate pronounced sentence, their demand be granted. It's either, I think it's in Matthew's gospel where at this point he goes and he takes water in front of everybody and has it poured over his hands in a metaphoric gesture going, his blood is not on my hands. You're the ones that wanted him dead. You get your wish. To which they reply, let his blood be on our heads. Oh yeah. Isn't that ironic that they said that? But you know, Pilate being such an upstanding guy, that this is what people do. Let's just pass the buck again. He's been trying to pass the buck, tried to pass it over to, to uh, Herod Antipas. Herod passed it back to him. So it's his responsibility. Oh, I'll just wash my hands. What a terrible leader. Men and women, there are things in your life you're going to have to make hard decisions on. And there may be Difficulties that follow from what you have to do. Make the right choice. Don't be like Pilate. If you have to make a choice based upon the, the, the hole you've dug for yourself, then make the better choice than the bad choice. And let the consequences come. Come what may. Do what you have to do. In ministry, I can tell you, those choices are before me all the time. Dealing with people. Dealing with difficult people. Dealing with people that, that may not need to be in the church anymore. Dealing with people that need to get their behinds in church. Saying things that people don't like. Speaking the truth. I have lost so many friends. I lost a friend this past week telling her exactly what she needed to hear. But no, she left the church. I'm done. Does it hurt? Yes. Hurts, I hurt for her. I'm a pastor. She's a sheep. It's my job to go get the sheep. When the sheep don't want anything to do with you, what do you do? Pilate washed his hands as if to say, I'm innocent. Verse 25, and he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. It's at this point that he'll receive his horrible flogging before his crucifixion. You see, when you let out when you let go a Barabbas, when you set free your own, let's just say when we set free our own sinful will, when we do what is wrong, we let danger out of the bag. And anything can happen. Now, there's a reckless murderer roaming the streets in Israel. And Pilate knows it. He's willing to put his own men 
in danger, the innocent people in danger, to appease the crowd. When we let our own will take over, we let danger out of the bag. What are you giving into? Is it pornography? Is it the drink? What rules you? What, is, what are you a slave to? You may have tendencies for pornography or drinking or whatever it is it might be, coveting and materialism. You may feel yourself have those tendencies, but you can't let them out. They must be suppressed. How? How can I suppress them, Lance? Please tell me. Fill yourself with the Word of God. Fill yourself with the Word of God because if you're reading God's Word, you're not drinking. You're not looking at filth. You're not at the mall coveting what you don't have. When you're on your knees in prayer, you're not doing any of those aforementioned sins either. You're filling yourself with the Word of God, which the Bible calls being filled with the Spirit of God. And being filled with the Spirit of God produces, according to Ephesians 5, 18, all the way into Ephesians 6, we're filled with singing, thanking, loving, submitting, obeying. But when we're not, we're just finding ways to let it all out of the bag. And the more often you let that out of the bag, the more often you give in to your sinful temptations, the closer you get to becoming like Herod Antipas. Where you neither care nor hear the Word of God. The passion of the Christ on Friday morning before sunrise, three more trials after three previous trials the night before, in the kangaroo courts, putting our Lord and God on trial. Imagine if that was your dad. Imagine if that was your mother. Imagine if that was your beloved grandfather or grandmother being accused of crimes they did not commit, being mocked, beaten, scourged. Would you shed a tear then? Could you go home and just think about nothing else? What about today as we think about our Lord Jesus Christ who endured so much worse and was so much more innocent than my mother or father could ever be? Who was unjustly tried, unjustly beaten, unjustly mocked, all the while paying the price for our redemption. Oh, worship the Lord. Oh, worship our King. That's what He is, you know. He is our King. Question is, will you submit to him as such? Or will you just, as Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas did, put a robe on him? You're a king, huh? Sure you are. Acknowledge his kingdom. But even the devil does that. It's his people that submit to him as Lord and God. Which one are you? Let's pray. Lord, you are our king, and you shall reign forevermore, forevermore. We long for the day you return. And if we don't, may we start to long for it today. Return. Come again. Save us from us. 
Forget what's in the world. We are our worst enemies. Your blood covers our sins. You've paid the payment of our sin. And now we, Lord, we want to be free from it. So we long for that time. When we are in your presence, your literal, physical presence, and we are free from sin altogether. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 